chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. In the 2007 article, The Baton Death March of Whimsy, Case File Number 1, Nathan Rabin proposed a term that would change the culture forever. He wrote, quote, The manic pixie dream girl exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. The manic pixie dream girl is an all-or-nothing proposition, Audiences either want to marry her instantly, despite the Manic Pixie Dream Girl being, you know, a fictional character, or they want to commit grievous bodily harm against them and their immediate family. Unquote. It's Manic Pixie Dream Girl Month. Yeah, it is. Janelle, I am a little nervous about this month, I gotta tell you. Really? Why? Um, one, I think that the bad movies we've watched in the last couple months have been sort of enjoyably bad. And um, if this week's movie is anything to go on, I think we might just be entering bad movie territory. I also fear for this. This is not, I wouldn't say this is the worst movie that we've seen, but I actually think like on some level, it is the worst screenplay considering that it was written by Cameron Crowe, who's known for writing like pretty good screenplays. This movie is, I mean, it's unfathomable. How just not good it is. It's not even actively bad. I mean, it is, but it's just there's a lack of good. And I and I saw someone, and I think it was actually the uh, the uh, writer Nathan Rabin, uh, who described it as a film that is constantly reaching out with its arms open and saying "Love me, love me, love me," <laughs> and that is accurate. I would say. Yeah, I just feel like, and we'll get into this, but Cameron Crowe, the you know the writer and director, is known for these movies that are regardless of their their quality on a like a truly you know academically rated scale are charming and have characters who are charming mm-hmm. and i feel like he took all these things that he thought would be charming took all of the elements that make them charming out of them and then threw them all into a bucket and there's just it's continually not charming yes and like venus birthing herself from the waves the manic pixie dream girl emerged <laughs> from that bucket of whimsical shit <laughs> So I think, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie and then we can get into it. Right. Uh, so uh, you already know this by now, I'm sure. But if you know your pop culture history, uh, the article that we quoted from the beginning of uh, the show is about the trope namer for the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, the infamous Elizabeth Town, the year of our Lord, 2005. Here <laughs> is your Google summary. Aspiring young shoe designer Drew Baylor, played by Orlando Bloom gets fired from his high-profile job after the failure of his latest project. To make matters worse, his girlfriend, Ellen, played by Jessica Biel, leaves him, and he becomes suicidal. Drew's morbid plans are interrupted by the news of his father's death, and he is called back to his Kentucky hometown. On his flight home, he meets the lovely Claire, played by Kirsten Dunst, a sunny flight attendant who tries to help him embrace life once again. Um, Eliza... That's what Google says this movie's about. But I have a feeling you're not going to agree. So what is Elizabeth Town really about? This movie is about a mediocre white man being saved at the expense of everyone around him, including his father, who is now dead. 
and at the expense of the young woman whose life doesn't matter as long as she can come and save this man from his deep sadness. Yeah, I um, I agree. I tend to agree. And I, I think maybe the, the I had known the reputation of this film, obviously, as a student of pop culture history, um, but I'd never seen it before. And mm. the early scenes with uh, Drew after the failure of his shoe design, of all things, um, uh, resulting in a billion dollar loss for his company, billion with a B, yeah, which they make sure to They repeat. never make it clear what went wrong with the shoe. They're just like, you made a shoe and now the company has lost a billion dollars and you'll be an international laughing stock. And I truly, like, I understand in a movie, sometimes you just write in corporate jargon to like be a placeholder, but I truly do not understand what happened to make this shoe, which hasn't even hit the market yet, lose the company a billion dollars. Right. And, and and put a pin in that, listeners, because we're going to go back to the fact that there's probably, I would hazard a guess that there's about 10 major threads in this plot, very <laughs> few of which end up having reasonable, logical origins and details. Or conclusions. It's a hot mess. But maybe the most hot mess of it is actually this shoe plot, because it prompts Drew to become... Not just to have suicidal ideation, which is the, you know, the thinking, the consideration, the the repetitive thought of suicide, but suicidal intention. He makes it very clear that it is his plan, his active plan to commit suicide. Is that what his plan is? Because I'm not sure at any point would this plan have been effective. Because for those who haven't watched the movie, and if you haven't, you should maintain that and continue to not watch this movie... He attempts, he's got one of those exercise bikes where like the handle goes forward and backward as you bike and he tapes a kitchen knife to the the bike so that theoretically as it moves closer to him, it would stab him repeatedly in the chest. As it is, I'm not actually sure the knife would get close enough to hit him in the chest with how this bike works like to start with. The knife is not well taped to this thing so i think it would probably just get knocked off and i would imagine once you stabbed yourself in the chest once you would probably stop biking pretty quickly yeah i mean uh, from blood loss alone i don't know that you (laughs) could continue biking but also i've watched enough true crime shows to know that it takes quite a bit of force to puncture the rib cage (laughs) and the like breast tissue so good luck with that on a bike not that I want anyone to try it, but I'm just no. saying, logistically, come on. But also, the whole scene and everything that like leads up to that scene clearly is trying to tell you that this character played by Orlando Bloom is, he's a professional failure, and he's sort of a, what I like to think of as an internal philosopher. You know, he's got all these sort of grand ideas in his head, but he thinks them only to himself, and they make him deeper and more interesting than everyone around him. And mm-hmm. like he, he's not even going to commit suicide in the normal way. He has to be different about it. And it's like, why is this how you're trying to introduce us to this character? Yeah, he's actually a deeply unlikable character, I think. I mean, I felt... So, as you know from the plot summary, his father dies, and he gets this call from his sister that his father has died suddenly, and she says, hey, you know, something serious has happened, and before she can say what it is, he says, can you call back? And I think it's supposed to be funny, except that he's saying, can you call back so that he'll be dead by the time she calls him back, which is not funny, yeah, it's not even, like, darkly funny. Like, no register, no, like, comedic register does it work yeah, on. Yeah, I think it's trying to go for, like, a Harold and Maude sort of situation, and it just, it does not accomplish that. You're just like, dude, just, you answered the phone. Like, why would you answer the phone if you didn't want to have the phone call? Uh, indeed, yeah. 
And I guess maybe that's supposed to communicate to us that he doesn't actually want to die and this is all sort of for show. But I, I can't even get into it. And maybe at some point this month I'll do a rant on our Patreon about this, about the portrayal of mental illness and mm. suicidal uh, intent and ideation in these films. But that is, like, so insulting to suicidal impulses. Like, I mm-hmm. can't... And so harmful. Especially because I remember this cultural moment, right? Like, we were kind of, like, young teenagers when this movie came yeah. out. And... I remember the discourse around self-harm and suicide at this time, and it was, like, not an uncommon topic of conversation, Mm -hmm. right? It was kind of circulating in the pop culture ethos. And so the fact that these films so often predicate themselves on some kind of, like, suicidal despair in a really quite, like, glib and dismissive way really disturbs me looking back. Yeah, there's a romanticizing of it that almost seems to imply you're not, like, truly deep if you haven't at some point given real thought to killing yourself. Um, which is, I mean, first of all, just like what a terrible message to be sending, but also is is just genuinely a strange element to decide to wrap into this particular type of character. You know, we, we're going to talk later about the trope that the main female character is, but Orlando Bloom is playing a very particular sort of male trope as well um, that you see a lot of times in these sort of like early mid 2000s type movies. And, you know, and everything about him in the first 20 minutes of the movie is to create this trope. You know, he hates corporate culture, even though he's clearly, like, working in a big corporate office and fully his life is surrounded by it. He, you know, has been trying to climb the corporate ladder, but he's got this boss who speaks in, like, weird philosophical, you know, confusion that he just sort of nods along to, but he doesn't really get. And he's got all these thoughts about everyone in his office that clearly show he thinks he's better than them. And he's not close with his family. You know, all this sort of stuff, they they put it in there. And the having thoughts of suicide as he's suddenly become a professional failure is somehow part of that in a way that I just don't feel like it's necessary, but at the time it kind of was in order to complete this trope. You're so right. And I think that as a, as the, you know, the trope naming article mentions, I mean, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is almost always foiled by essentially a raisonneur, like a, like an author replacement for mm-hmm. the sensitive director writer type, Right. Um, and and in fact, like when I was thinking about this, this movie to everything you were saying, Eliza, about this trope, it made me sort of realize that there's actually a counter discourse that I think should happen around the Manic Pixie Dream Girl that is actually about this sensitive writer director type. Mm-hmm. And I think on some level, like there is a version of this movie that Cameron Crowe could have like streamlined and actually worked on a little bit longer, I presume, that would have been about you know, like masculinity failing, like traditional masculinity Mm -hmm. not serving these men. And in some ways, my hypothesis is, and we'll see if this follows through our conversation, my hypothesis is that the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is a wish fulfillment, not just because men want women who are quirky and have no other personality uh, apart from that, uh, or needs, um, but in part, she like represents like an escape from masculinity. That's that's my hypothesis. Mm -hmm. We'll see whether that that comes through in the end of this month or not. (laughs) It's interesting. I'll have to give that a little bit of thought. I mean, he definitely, there's some sort of elements of what we would consider traditional masculinity in this character and also some elements of not so much. You know, he he works in a fancy corporate office and has fancy clothes and, you know, right, like he's certainly living a pampered life. It's not like he's like a big, tough, manly man. But he also is, you know, by being this corporate success, at least until this major shoe failure is supposed to be, you know, able to provide and succeed in his realm and all of that kind of stuff. So they're certainly putting him on a, a rubric of, you know, mm-hmm. a pretty traditional rubric for measuring his success 
in the eyes of everyone around him. And and again, meanwhile, he's making it clear he doesn't care about this rubric, really. You know, he's he's not like other boys. Uh, the thing that, like, the first big thing that just made me, like, roll my eyes and moan in anger was he has this this thing that they keep coming back to in the movie about, I collect last looks. And he's saying that, like, anytime he gets a look from someone where it's the last time you've looked at, you're going to look at that person ever, like, the last time you see them before they are gone from your life entirely, he remembers that look. And it's something that he keeps a, you know, a record of in his head. Which, first of all, is just, like so weird because most of the time you don't know when you're seeing someone for the very last time but they also keep applying it to things that are not last looks in the movie like he goes to have this meeting with his boss where he's going to get fired and the secretaries look at him as he's going into the office and he's like and i remembered those last looks he's going to come back out of that office and those secretaries are still going to be there (laughs) Like, this is not the last look he's getting from them. Way later on in the movie, he says that he's getting this last look from um, from Claire, the Kirsten Dunst character. And first of all, you know that's not true because the two of them are super into each other and keep calling each other and getting together. But also, it's when they've, like, set off the fire alarms in the building they're in and they're getting everyone out and he's still standing in the middle of the room and she's walking outside and he's like, and that was the last look. He's about to also leave the building and they'll see each other again outside in the group of people who just got wet when the fire alarm went off. Like, what the fuck is he even talking about? Well, and also from a, like, good practices of writing standpoint, the thing about this that is so fucking annoying, besides everything that you've just said, which is also fucking annoying, but, like, the other fucking annoying thing about it is that it doesn't tie in thematically with anything else in the movie. It's not tied in with missing his father. It's not tied in with his own, like, I don't know, alienation from himself in a hyper-masculine society. No, it just sort of free floats. As whimsy. You you kind of think at some point he's going to, like, remember the last time he saw his dad and it was just, Mm -hmm. like, a normal goodbye and he didn't give it enough thought. And he's like, I've been paying so much attention to all these people who don't matter and I didn't pay attention to him. And that never happens. The only, like, flashbacks you see with him and his dad are to, like, childhood. Which, again, kind of come out of nowhere and don't have anything to do with anything. You're just like, oh, remember that one time dad and I laughed together? That's a good thing to remember. And then they move on. Like, there's no consistency of theme or of message at any point other than just like this man has thoughts sometimes and we feel you should care about them because he's Orlando Bloom. And this this brings us perfectly Eliza to how our Orlando Bloom, our Drew meets his manic pixie dream girl. Can we just <laughs> unpack everything about that because first of all, everyone, I just want you all to don't watch the whole movie, just watch the part of the movie right before he's like leaving for Kentucky to go find his father's body or whatever. And his voiceover says, nothing could stop my plan. Nothing. And then the camera pans immediately to Kirsten Dunst and a song that I shit you not has the chorus, it will all work out. Why did I need to watch the rest of the movie, Cameron Crowe? Is this a short? Why did you do that? Well, and then the most inexplicable meet-cute on the face of the planet happens. And I use the term meet-cute just because that's sort of the closest trope within a rom-com that I can compare it to. But this does not qualify as a meet-cute because it's not like they randomly happen to meet. She's the flight attendant on the plane and just decides that the two of them are in the middle of a conversation. Like, he's literally got, like, headphones in and the, you know, eyepiece over. Like, he's about to fall asleep on this plane. And she's like, hi, I'm going to be loud and quirky next to you. I'm going to tell you all about my life. And I'm going to ask you about your life. And I'm going to insist that blah, 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 blah. And he's just staring at her. 
in like true horror, which honestly, the only time in the movie that I was on his side, because I was like, yeah, this is very concerning. This woman's clearly insane and she's really bothering you when you're trying to sleep. And then as she's leaving, as he's leaving the plane, she's like yelling after him and waving after him. And she gave him like three phone numbers to call her on. And you're like, this woman is insane. And then for the rest of the movie, he's super into her and he loves that they just happen to like keep running into each other. And you're like, that's not what happened. Yeah, she like sets her sights on him in such an aggressive way that made me think to myself, like, you're not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to do that. I can't, I can't pursue men like that. What? No, that's not the rules of society. So there's part of me that was like, well, maybe that's cool that she's breaking the rules of society. That's cool. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in like real life, how can this character and her aggression be the wish fulfillment fantasy when in real right? life, if you tried to do this, men would tell you that you were a stage five clinger and tell you to go die in a fire? Well, and it like it gave me two thoughts. One is that it was sort of the female equivalent of a guy like sitting down next to a girl who's reading and then like forcing her to talk to him about the book she's reading, right? Being like, what are you mm. reading? Is it good? Right? Like it was that kind of like, I'm going to like force a conversation on you. But again, even then, the idea is that you're then supposed to be like interested in that conversation and participate back. And Orlando Bloom doesn't do that here. Right. And it just like, I've seen this scene in other movies, right? Where someone says something and the other person like happens to quip back in a way that like catches their sense of humor. And suddenly they're having a weird conversation. And maybe one of them is like a little more forward than the other one would be because you want to have that dynamic. But there's at least a give and take or there's something about the more out there person that the more reserved character is drawn to. And that's not what happens in this scene. Like, Cameron Crowe somehow totally missed what makes those kind of scenes mm. work from a dialogue perspective. Because there's no dialogue. It's just this woman speaking at Orlando Bloom as he's, like, trying to sleep because he's sad that his dad just died. Like, it's not charming. It's not endearing. It's just off-putting. And that's why I feel like on, like, there, as I often speculate, I feel like there is another version of this story where it's more clear that Okay, I don't necessarily believe, right, in that in heterosexual pairings that there should be a male energy and a female energy and blah, 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 blah. But I would say that in society, we've kind of established that trope, right, that the man is the pursuer and the woman is the pursued. But mm -hmm. in a way, this movie is like turning it on its head, but because it doesn't connect it again to the themes of the movie, which could very well have been like, oh, yeah, patriarchy sucks and he didn't have a relationship with his dad and that's so fucked up. And he didn't have a relationship with his dad because his dad also was stuck in this toxic masculinity. and He was stuck in toxic masculinity, so he felt like he had to work all the time. So this woman comes into his life and is like, hey, I'm going to be the aggressor. I'm going to be the one that establishes the relationship. I'm going to tell you what to do. Like, that would be kind of interesting. But that's not that's not what it right. does. None of that's actually there. And that, I think, was what was so frustrating to me about this movie, is that there's like 18 different plots, and all of them hinge on information or on themes that just don't exist elsewhere in the movie or even within the, their plots themselves. You know, the idea of this sort of mysterious, quirky, interesting woman who, like, helps you to become more of a free spirit is that you have to be really, like, bottled up and tightly laced and whatever and be looking for that in your life something to free you and like not that he's a free spirit at the beginning of the movie but you don't get the sense that he's tightly laced he's just like a hard-working dude who then failed and now has been fired from his job so has a bunch of free time right like it's not like he decides to leave his job because he realizes there's a more fun world out there after her or he's like really focused on getting his job back and then he realizes that like maybe there's other opportunities out there like he just like gets fired from his job and then immediately has to go deal with his dad's, you know, funeral 
And like, that's the last that you really hear about it, other than him being like, yeah, I'm a failure. She doesn't at any point teach him that he's not a failure. She teaches him to embrace life, which is not what the problem was, right? Like, what what she provides for him is not the antidote to the conundrum that he had at the beginning of the movie. And the whole thing with his dad, and he goes to the, like, the small town where his dad grew up, which again, I was confused the whole time because they sort of imply that his parents, when they got married, moved away and the kids really didn't have a lot of interaction with like their extended family back in this small town, except that they keep implying that the dad's been around in the small town a lot. Like everyone in town still knows him and everyone mm-hmm. in town is like, oh, the last time he was here last summer, blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't make sense because if he took his kids away and didn't like the kids were never brought home to see everyone, when was he coming home and seeing everyone? Right. Like there's this weird disconnect. And then Drew, like, learns to enjoy family by being around his family he didn't know, except that he doesn't truly learn that, and then afterwards he just goes home. You know, right, there's continually these almost messages that happen, or these almost learning opportunities, and none of them come to any fruition. Yeah, I mean, I think therein lies oftentimes, like, the major problem, or the kind of meta problem with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl as a writing trope. And we we will get into the Manic Pixie Dream Girl as a real-life trope later. <laughs> um, as a writing trope, she, like you said, her solution to every problem is more life, more life. Like, be wild, embrace life. But the problems in these films would be so much better served by a character who instead of sort of throwing this like general joie de vivre at the wall is is a is is using their quirk and their sort of outsider status in society and their sort of um inability to fit in cleanly with hegemonic norms to say like yeah the norm is bad mm-hmm. and but that's not the articulation that these characters make instead it's a very old trope that like women are about life because they are the creators of life and their womb is a sacred passage that produces, you know, vitality, blah, blah, blah. And it's so boring. Well, and there is, like, there's variation in how well this does or doesn't work in these kind of movies. You know, we previously did an episode on 500 Days of Summer, which in and of itself is both a great example of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl and a deconstruction, you know, so it's a little more complicated. But in that, for all of its other problems... The Joseph Gordon-Levitt character, his problem is that he's stuck in a job where he's unhappy, but he doesn't really think he can pursue anything else, and there's a dream he had once that he didn't pursue, and he doesn't really know how to enjoy his life currently, even though he's got like a group of friends and a decent job and all this kind of stuff. And then he meets a woman who also works at that company who has a more sort of free-flowing attitude towards life and is like, yeah, I'm in this job right now and it's good, but I'm always keeping my options open and maybe I'll pursue a dream that I've, you know, have from the past or a new dream that I'll, you should open yourself up to that. And ultimately he does. Now for all the other issues in their relationship, like thematically that works, right? What it is that he's lacking in his life, she provides him with a window to how to achieve that. This doesn't have that. This does, I was like, I don't understand why this Kirsten Dunst character is the solution to the main guy's problems. Um, And on top of that, I also didn't understand why she was the way she was, right? Because like, she's so all over the place. And the moment she meets him, everything about her life stops mattering. You don't know where she lives. She's supposed to be a um, flight attendant, but she's never on a plane after the one time she's on the plane with him. Right. Like she just like stops going to work or something. Yeah, she does. She literally there's a part where she's she gives up an opportunity to go to Hawaii for a few days of vacation just to spend more time with him. Right. Like she gives up the chance to go to Hawaii to come spend time with this guy she met for 10 minutes who's at his father's funeral. What is that? It's so weird. And there's all these lines about her having this like boyfriend or pseudo boyfriend who's supposed to be coming and visiting 
and then he either doesn't show up or he does, but she dumps him or he dumps her. You never get the answers on that. He might be a figment of her imagination. And I don't mean like she may have invented him to make herself that sound interesting. I mean, she may have literally believes he's real and he's not. Um, it's <laughs> so unclear. And I also, I looked up Kirsten Dunst's, Kirsten Dunst's age when this movie was made. She and Jessica Biel, who plays the ex-girlfriend, are both 23 when this movie came out. So every line that Kirsten Dunst's character has, and there are several of them, about, well, I just haven't really found my place, or I'm the kind of girl who gets left behind, and that's why I'll never find love, and blah, blah. She's 23! I mean, that's like, a major issue I have with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, too, is that it's about, it is it is subtextually about vitalizing an older man with youth. Absolutely. There's this sense that, like, Orlando Bloom's character is, you know, has given up on the joys of the 20s and then just 20 something comes along and is like no you can still be fun and interesting and it's just it's so wild to me to present it that way and that like she's so wise and knows so much about the world and is world weary but has turned that into charm and joy and it's like she's not world weary she's 23 this is her first <laughs> job out of college she's probably been a flight attendant for six months and i'm a little concerned that she's insane and she's gonna stalk the wrong guy and get murdered meanwhile also just while we're talking about ages orlando bloom was 28 when this film was made and judy greer who plays his little sister was in her 30s yeah i was so confused about that what the fuck casting that's a, that's another female character who gets nothing first of all don't ever hire judy greer and then give her nothing to do what is wrong with you but second of all they have her have a throwaway line about you need to deal with this because you're the big brother and i can't go because of the baby you never see a baby you never hear the baby mentioned again you never see a spouse or a partner of any kind she and the mom eventually do come to the town where the dad died and is going to be buried even though a week before they said they couldn't she does not come with a baby or a spouse of any kind like Th that's it. That's all we ever hear about her. We know nothing about her personality. We know very little about her relationship with her brother or her mother. We know nothing about her life, just that, like, she can't handle it because she's not the big brother. And we also need to talk about Susan Sarandon's character, who gets a scene in this movie that really should have been cut out and, and redone by uh, David Lynch. Then it would have been, like, <laughs> super interesting. Because it's one of the... It, it is truly... Uh, and it's hard for me to describe what exactly happens, listeners. But basically, she does a stand-up routine at her husband's funeral. And it's vulgar. And she says the word boner twice. And then she tap dances to Moon River. And that's really all you need to know. But see, doing that in a whimsical, like, Cameron Crowe rom-com, that is, that is, like, broke. What's woke? A David Lynch surrealist version <laughs> that is to a totally empty room. And it's a critique... Of American masculinity. Now that's what everybody wants to see, right? Anyway, so what I wrote in my notes about this was that it is so unfair to Susan Sarandon that they made her do this. Mm -hmm. I don't even have a problem with the scene. It just belongs in a different movie, one in which we've gotten to know Susan Sarandon's character before Correct. she has this mental breakdown in front of her in-laws. Like, we have a couple moments where... Orlando Bloom is on the phone with his sister, with Judy Greer, and Susan Sarandon's in the background, like, going manic because her husband died less than a week ago. And Judy Greer, the daughter, is basically just like, Mom's going crazy and I don't know how to calm her down. And then a week later, they come to the father's memorial service, and first of all, Susan Sarandon talks about, in the time since her husband has died, taking cooking classes, tap classes, and joining a comedy troupe. It's been a week. And saying, so, you know, she can't figure out what to do with her life now that he's gone. It's been a week saying, you know, as we all know, she was so boring before and she never explored her life and blah, blah, blah. We haven't seen any of this because we haven't had any real scenes with her. And then she was like, but in order to make my husband laugh, because this is the kind of thing he would have liked, I am going to do a tap dance number. 
Again, we know nothing about her relationship with her husband. And when did she learn to tap dance? And they also have a whole thing about like her relationship with her in-laws, which is sort of referenced at the beginning when they're like, yeah, they got married and left. And that's it. So we don't know if she's never spoken to these people, if every holiday has just been really awkward, if they all hate her, if they're all uncomfortable around her, nothing. And then there's this big scene to break the tension that doesn't exist. Did you notice that Susan Sarandon's character was also a Manic Pixie Dream Girl? But like the OG Manic Pixie Dream Girl? Because she tells that whole story about how her and the father met. They met in an elevator. Hello, meet cute. She was like a beautiful young model in Tokyo and he was like a military captain and they got married like two days later. Right. And then she like whisks him away and he never returns to his small town in Kentucky he came from. Like they absolutely, she's supposed to also be the whimsical woman who won him over and changed his life. But again, that's all we get. We don't know anything more about it. We don't know if he was always trying to escape, you know, right? Like you could say... He was in the military because that was his way out of the small town, and he managed to travel while he was in the military, which he loved, and when he came home, nobody understood it because no one else had traveled, right? Like, you could put that in there, but it's not there. Mm -hmm. And so instead, all we know is, like, well, he met Susan Sarandon and his life changed because isn't that what would happen to you if you met Susan Sarandon? And I don't know, maybe, <laughs> but, like, maybe not. <laughs> it's so frustrating because the concepts of male-female relationships are so unusual in this. It's not even that they're one-sided or that they're really stuck in a particular sort of stereotyped kind of gender norm. It's that they're genuinely odd. They're so odd. And the viewpoint of this movie, it, it's interesting. Like the gender, the heterosexual gender politics of this movie, instead of it being like a horror Madonna complex, it's like mm -hmm. a manic pixie dream girl, uptight corporate lady <laughs> complex. Because the only contrast we have really... I mean, to Susan Sarandon's character and Claire's character, besides the Judy Greer as the sister, which I don't even know where to place her in that spectrum, she has is no Jessica Beale's. Yeah, is Jessica Beale's character who is playing right. this like really stuck up, like materialistic corporate woman who we also know nothing about. Yeah, I mean, we don't. It's never even clear if she and Orlando Bloom are actually dating at the beginning or not. You see a shot of them flirting and almost kissing at the Christmas party at the office, like the year before. And then you have essentially a breakup phone call between them. But even the breakup phone call, it's unclear if she's saying, like, I'm breaking up with you and going to be dating someone else, or if she's like, please stop calling me. And when you see them in the office, you only see them on the one day when he's getting fired. So she just looks sad at him. And you can't tell if she's like, no, my boyfriend got fired. Or if she's like, I can't believe you fucked up our entire company. And either way, that doesn't tell, like, you don't know what their relationship is. And yet somehow we're supposed to understand how her presence in his life is shaping his perception of the world. But we don't know anything, and it's so frustrating. And you even get this that same kind of dynamic a little bit among the guys in the movie, because mm -hmm. the other foil that you have to Orlando Bloom's character is his cousin, who he spends time with when he goes to the town to deal with his father's funeral. And again, you actually don't learn that much about the cousin, although you do learn more about him than any of the women in the story. But... He clearly grew up in this small town. He's got a son. I'm not even sure we ever hear anything about the son's mother. He is constantly being berated by his father for not being like a stern enough father. He's too lax with his kid, and so his kid's really wild. But also his kid kind of just seems like a normal, like, wild seven-year-old. Like, he's very, like, chill and cool, and he wants Orlando Bloom to be chill and cool. And Orlando Bloom's kind of like, yeah, that's nice that you're like that. All right, I'm going to, like, go back to the West Coast now. And that's their whole relationship, too. You know, there's just all of these people who are just tools to get Orlando Bloom where he's going, except again, I'm not really sure what they actually accomplish in his journey. 
I just feel like there's, I mean, I hate to harp on this, but I really feel this. Like, I feel like in 200 years, people are going to be deeply studying this period of cinema and their dissertations and shit. And they're going to be like, well, as everyone knows, the early 2000s in the United States is a, is a crisis of masculinity. And uh, in, in all of the media at the time, men sought out every kind of remedy that they could find, you know, whether that was a fight club, a manic pixie dream girl. Like, for example, like Claire has this tape that she gives drew that magically has a video about demolishing homes <laughs> that is also specifically been filmed to quiet children to make sure that they're good if they want to watch the home being demolished i have so many questions about that it's but so weird that scene is so weird it is so weird and it's so weird that it made me think like this is clearly allegorical like this is so weird mm -hmm. that it has to be symbolic and I was like, okay, like, you know, I'm a cultural critic. I can do this. So it's like, we're, we're blowing up the house. We're blowing up tradition. We're starting something new. Um, we're going to blow up the patriarchy and we're going to like forget toxic masculinity. And then the rest of the film happens. I'm like, oh, so we weren't doing that. We were just watching a weird demolition movie. That's so emblematic of everything in the film, including like the foiling of the two characters that you're talking about. Absolutely. And that's how I feel about the wedding. So we haven't even talked about this. The hotel he's staying at while he's staying in town has this huge wedding that's happening that weekend that like is clearly relatively young people getting married and all of their friends are like frat bros and they're just drunk in the hallways of this hotel all the time. And at various points, both Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst befriend the bride and groom and like all of their friends. And they keep coming back to this, especially when he's like having moments of introspection and then there's like people partying behind him and you're like, okay, you get the, you know, the juxtaposition there, but you keep thinking that it's going to like come to something there's this scene where he interacts with the groom and the groom like finds out that his dad died, that Orlando Bloom's dad died and he starts crying and he's like, oh my God, life and death, like they're so connected. And you're thinking, okay, so we're either going to find out at some point that like this bride and groom should not get married. And there's going to be like a whole thing with that, that somehow Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst are going to like get in the middle of the shenanigans for, or they're going to like talk them back together, right? Like she's going to be like, I hate him. I can't be with him anymore. And like Kirsten Dunst is going to somehow like give her a pep talk and it's going to like get them back together. And somehow that's going to teach she and Orlando Bloom about, you know, and nothing comes of it. They just like have befriended these people. And that's the end of that storyline. The, the biggest thing it does is at one point she's come to the hotel and by the time he finds her, she's befriended the entire bridal party. And so like, you're supposed to know that she's likable. <laughs> yeah, it's Th almost, it's it. laughable. It's a joke. She's like, if likability was radiation, she would have crazy radiation poisoning. She would be Chernobyl. Because that could be a fun foil for this kind of a story to have this like weird side story going on, especially if, if this, this movie is supposed to be about his story with his family then having this other sort of big family event that's happening, right? Like a funeral, a wedding, those are big moments in people's lives. They have to do with life and death. They have to do with families and complications. And to have the two very different things happening side by side, I like that as a narrative foil. I like that element. But you have to do something with it. You can't just mm -hmm. be like, and it's funny because he's sad, but they're drunk. It just really takes you back to this moment where, I guess because we were coming out of a period of like pretty like vapid um, film and television, that we went into this moment where the whole appeal of certain media was that it was emotional. And mm -hmm. not even in like a raw way, just that it like acknowledged that emotions were real. Exists. Well, and that's the breakdown of traditional masculinity, right? They're being like, yeah. just by acknowledging that he has emotions... He's different. Wow, it's it's extremely disturbing. And again, like I think like for me in this month when we talk about Man and Pixie Dream Girls, that's what I'm gonna be more interested in is like the masculinity that produces this mm -hmm. character. I mean, I, I someone called me out on this because I'm sure this isn't true, but I can't 
think of an example where a screenplay was written by a woman that has a manic pixie dream girl. I I can't think of an example. I'm sure they exist because even women do often give in to, you know, overplayed tropes. Um, but certainly not to this extent where this woman exists purely as this fantastical element with no real heft on her own in order to bolster the man's story, right? Like that mm-hmm. level of it, I certainly can't think of an example. Well, it's just, it's just so sad because you think like on the one hand, like it's so great that this crisis of masculinity sort of like came to a fore and it's being addressed, you know, even now, right? 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, a, it's so tragic to watch this car crash happen, you know, from with hindsight that like, but why does the crisis of masculinity have to be like carried and solved by women, you dirtbags? Like, right. come on. And and I don't have a problem with a story about someone meeting a person who then opens their eyes to a new world. I think that that can be a very powerful story. But there has to be more to that person than they exist in order to open your eyes to a new world. It's such a shame because I could see where if Claire had a little bit more heft to her, like she could be, she could have been a really interesting character. Like, I don't know how you felt about this scene, but the scene where they like were talking on the phone all night, Mm -hmm. I actually got like really kind of like emotional and wistful about it because I had a, I had a few calls like that um, with a guy that I was seeing a while back and I just like they were so lovely and they really were that kind of magic where you just can't stop talking to someone, you right. know, that is so real and so true and so honest. I would have liked that on the plane, yeah. right? Like that was what was missing. Cause the phone call was the sort of, it would, you know, it would kept being these little snippets of their conversation and, you know, he'd be saying, well, you know, I think I just like, I, I hadn't thought my dad was going to leave yet. And so I didn't really give it a lot of thought. And then they jumped to her being like, yeah. And that's when my friends all got busted standing in our bikinis. And then they jumped to him, right? Like it was just one of those kind of conversations. <laughs> and if that had happened on, on the plane when they first met and then he'd called her to continue it I would have felt more like it had been earned but mm-hmm. instead it just sort of came out of nowhere and not in like a fun way in just a confusing way yeah and again those conversations that I feel like people have often are the start of a story it's often like yeah it was this guy who I don't know I was kind of into blah blah and then we ended up staying up all night and talking and then three by three months later we were in a like long-term relationship you know it can't be the heft of the story because there has to be more that comes after it it's a the man in pixie dream girl more than anything is like a band-aid i mean that's yeah. her whole existence she just she's a quick fix and that's the kind of irony too and all that stuff that there's there's this kind of motif in the film that uh claire says that she and drew are substitute people it doesn't mm-hmm. actually mean anything in the narrative, so don't think about it no. too much. But the irony of it is that the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is a substitute person. That's basically kind of her yeah. role. Yeah, and again, I feel like there was potential for her to be more interesting if they'd actually dived into any of that part of her personality. Like, there was this one moment that I genuinely did like, and I thought, man, this deserves to be in a better movie. But they have this kiss, and again, at this point, he still thinks that she's kind of with this other guy, but they're, you know, they give into their passion, and they have this kiss. And she says to him right before they sleep together, most of the sex I've had in my life was not as personal as that kiss. Mm. Which is a great line. Like, first of all, it's funny, and she delivers it really well, but it also, like, if the story is she's had a lot of relationships in her life, and they've all been these kind of, like, filler relationships, and people just use her as the dumb blonde, like, if you want to give her a, you know, Elle Woods Legally Blonde type story where everyone just sees her as, like, pretty and nice and, you know, blah, blah, but then they take advantage of her and she doesn't get taken seriously, and then she has this real connection with someone, and she has this moment of, like, even this one day that was mostly 
you know, sort of asexual. And then this one kiss had more chemistry and more meaning and was more important to me than all of these relationships I've had just because I felt like mm. I should. Like, that's a great story. God, you're so right. And 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 that's so tragic because, you know, as we've talked about um, in our sort of like background conversations about this month, like one of the problems, I should say maybe the biggest problem that we discussed about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is not that it's a writing trope, but that it's a life trope and that mm-hmm. there are people who project that identity either onto each other, onto themselves. And what it instead creates is... Uh, an an encounter where that that would have been like Claire's background, right? Where you you kind of move in and out of people's lives without too much consequence because you serve a purpose for them, like a short term purpose for them. I read one or two articles that said that part of the problem of buying into the manic pixie dream girl trope is that it can make men see themselves as um, protagonists in their stories and women see themselves as the sidekick, yeah. right? And like everyone should see themselves as the main character. But if you're constantly being fed a diet of media that shows the women as supporting the people around them, then you do view yourself as being someone who is meant to support others rather than support yourself or, or have a give and take of I support him, but he supports me as well. The men and mostly white men who are writing these kind of characters, whether they realize it or not, clearly do have this sort of attitude towards women, that the women are the supplemental elements of their life. And that's not good either. Yeah, like I, I can see how it happens too, right? That like you sort of think like, well, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying something powerful about the women in my life that like they have this effect on me that they can change my life, you know, but they don't realize, I think, how when you say this person is important because they changed my life, ultimately (laughs) their value is about you. It's 2021! We made it! And we would not have made it without our romantic leads on Patreon and all of our supporters, but especially Bob, Esther, Ian, and Trey. You guys keep the show going, and I I would stand in the rain and smile at you. For sure. If you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys and become a patron for as little as $1 a month in order to participate in our polls and help us pick movies and themes for the next month. For additional money, you also get access to lots of cool background stuff. We do you know, stuff that didn't make it into our final episodes. We've just put up our December newsletter that has some additional background information and research about some of the topics we covered in December. Uh, if you like when we get really nerdy, you definitely want access to that <laughs> newsletter because we went super nerdy this month. Um, you can also buy our merch on romcomkilljoys.threadless.com. And of course, like us on Facebook and Instagram. We love to hear from you. Janelle, I got to tell you, I am very excited about the antidotes this month. I can't wait to hear what you have for us because I know anytime I watch one of these movies, I need a palate cleanser. So please, what is your antidote? I took a lot of time to think about this because I I think I was really tempted to just be like, okay, but like, what's a good example of like a quirky, like, like relationship where they support each other and it's actually like well-written. And then I was like, uh, is that really what I'm interested in in this film? No. What I'm interested in this film is the patriarchal masculinity themes that led me to the 2003 Tim Burton film Big Fish. If you haven't seen Big Fish, you absolutely must. It's the it's about a, a young man who um, visits his father who is dying um, and is is taking in his uh, his stories, the story of his life, the the unbelievable tall tales of his life uh, to get to know him better before he dies. And I don't want to say too much about it beyond that, but just know that it it is a film that actually successfully threads the needle of whimsy so perfectly mm-hmm. uh, in a way that is cohesive and connects with the themes of the story. Um, it's a beautiful um, story about a father and his son, but it also in some ways, I was thinking about this while we were talking, Eliza, that in some ways it's actually 
a story where the manic pixie dream girl is the father (laughs) Mm. because he brings so much like life and vitality to everyone around him and his son is the one who sort of resists that change but it also has one of my favorite love stories and meet cutes in movies of all time so anyway go check that out big fish 2003 i'm going in a different direction uh, (laughs) with my suggestion i'm so excited about this because this is actually one of like my favorite movies that i feel like a lot of people haven't seen and when i bring it up people stare at me like i'm crazy so i'm very excited to recommend this i was thinking about kirsten dunst and i actually i think she's a wonderful actress and she's done some really great things and she just wasn't given enough heft in this movie so i wanted to suggest something where her comedy chops are really on display. And also where she's still playing a sort of quirky, ditzy, fun-loving female, but where it is in no way about her romantic relationship to men and much more about her A, friendship, and B, just like coming of self. Um, And that is the movie Dick from 1999. (gasps) Dick is such a good movie. Dick is a movie in which the premise is two teenage girls, played by Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams, accidentally become Deep Throat, the man responsible for bringing down Richard Nixon's presidency. (laughs) They live in D.C. and they've got just enough connections to the government that they keep sort of accidentally stumbling across important information about what's going on in the White House. And because they're these ditzy blonde teenagers, no one pays them any mind. So they like get lost in the White House when they're on a uh, school field trip and like stumble across a bunch of stuff. But then they just like get caught and get like escorted back to the main area and no one thinks like, oh no, we need to make sure that they like don't pass this information on and all this kind of stuff. (laughs) And it's so funny because they're not playing smart girls, right? Like they are very particularly playing ditzy girls. But as the movie goes on, they like realize what's happening and they start to realize their own power in the situation and take control of it and in the end they bring down Richard Nixon so funny and so good the two of them are like powerhouses in this movie it's totally over the top and ridiculous and like yes they are playing with the the you know idea of dick and of deep throat and of these teenage girls being these sort of blonde bombshells like it goes into it but it does it in a way that's so smart and so you know legally blonde-esque right it's that kind of idea of Yes, we're using their sexuality, but we're also playing you by using it. It's so good. Everyone go watch Dick. It's if you took a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, took the guy out of the story, and then like went and followed her about her day. Also, so, shout out that actresses who play Manic Pixie Dream Girls are not the problem. Let's right. all be very clear. <laughs> right. We are in no way criticizing any of the women playing these parts. We are criticizing the butthead men who write these parts for them. What? What? I don't know what noise that was that I just made. But... <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog. And the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy not a rom-com not us not anyone see See you you next time time.